Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Thousands of women left their homes in the West to travel to Syria to join ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, especially after it declared a caliphate in 2013. Many of them were educated and successful. Many others came from North Africa and the Mideast countries and from Russia and Central Asia. We read about ISIS and its cult of violence, its treatment of women, enforcing not just separation but extreme subordination and sometimes enslavement and rape. So why did these women go? Azadeh Moaveni wanted to find out. And in 2015, she published a front-page article in the New York Times on ISIS women defectors. That article was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. She's been covering the Mideast for two decades, reporting mostly for Time magazine and mostly based in Tehran. She wrote two wonderful books about Iran, Lipstick Jihad and Honeymoon in Tehran. We talked about them here. Now her writing appears in The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and The New York Times, and she has a new book out. It's called Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of Isis. We reached her today in London, Azadat Moaveni, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, before we talk about why these women went, we need to ask first about your project. How did you do this? Where did you find these women? How did you get them to talk to you? I started in London because that's what drew me to the whole project in the first place. I was very much drawn to the story of those three schoolgirls from East London, known as the Bethnal Green Girls. So I I was sort of inspired and compelled to work on it because I felt that their their disappearances were covered in such a alarming uh, way by the media here. They were very they were excommunicated. They were they were called you know ISIS whores and brides of the caliphate. So I went looking for them initially. Uh, so I traveled to southern Turkey trying to chase their trail, and it was there that I met some Syrian women who had defected from Raqqa and and kind of blended into the Syrian diaspora there. 
I then kind of expanded out. Um, I traveled to Tunisia because Tunisia sent, um, you know, a, a, probably the biggest number of women to ISIS. It, it was tough, though. I mean, basically, I was trying to speak to women who were eluding uh, security surveillance, were, were very distrustful, who had lots of reasons to not want to speak to anyone at all. I mean, I think distrust of the media was also so much part of the story of why young people, especially in Europe, um, didn't really believe all of the gory and horrific things that ISIS was doing. So that was another thing to have to overcome too. Um, I think yeah, I spoke with a lot of families. I think being of a, of a Muslim background, a second generation background, who could relate a little bit with you know the disapproval of the mothers, the frustration of the teenagers, all of that helped. And who were the women who left their homes, especially in the West, to join ISIS? Were they all confused teenagers or, as the media portrayed them, were any of them eager accomplices of violent jihad? Well, in, in the early period, say 2013, 2014, a lot of young people went for reasons that were fairly um, you know, we could identify with them or understand them, understand them as, as sympathetic. They believed that they were going to protect fellow Muslims who were being harmed and brutalized by the by the Syrian regime, by the Assad government. Um, they wanted to go help. There were a great many who believed themselves to be um, going to join some sort of pious Muslim society. There were a lot of women from the Middle East, and I think we have to remember that ISIS unfolded in the aftermath of the collapse of the Arab Spring. I think each country had its own story. There were sort of frustrations and grievances within each society that drew women. But I think overall, I mean, if there is a theme, I think in the early period before ISIS, you know, kind of made its genocidal project, I think the center of its messaging, in the first couple of years, there was a lot of perhaps very naive desire to find some sort of empowerment, political representation, a pathway to things and an outlet for desires and frustrations that we would kind of consider you know, understandable and legitimate. You said you started out following the trail of those three British girls from London. They were called the Bethnal Green Girls. They were 15 years old. They came from a well-regarded London high school. What did you learn about them? To me, they reflected the vulnerability of second-generation young Muslims who feel very excluded in the West. I think those girls, you know, reading their texts, their Twitter posts, all of their social messaging, I mean, all of the things that they were talking about, they were kind of developing a very nascent political consciousness. Like in so many Muslim households, they were kind of talking about how, why are Muslims so targeted by the war on terror and Guantanamo? There are these young people, no due process. They talked about racism. I think they felt very excluded and were very young. And all of that kind of nascent consciousness was, was very much manipulated by this group that it was you know, composed of Iraqi Baathists with a territorial jihadist project that had nothing to do with these identity uh, woes of you know, second generation Muslim youth in Europe. So part of what I tried to do with their story was to show how you know, a very local London story of growing up as a second generation Muslim in an era of still pretty stark exclusion could be knit together with a very far away story that had everything to do with you know, two other countries, very shattered contemporary histories, Syria and Iraq. And we have to talk about Noor, the girl from Tunisia who opens your book. Tell us about why she left home to go to Syria. Noor grew up in Tunisia before the 2011 uprising or revolution, uh, which actually kicked off the whole of the Arab Spring and started in Tunisia. So, Tunisia, so Noor grew up in this old, very authoritarian order in which 
women who were visibly pious, who covered their hair with headscarves, who were essentially excluded from public life. They couldn't attend university. They couldn't hold government jobs. So Noor, as a 13-year-old, showed up at high school one day deciding that she wanted to cover her hair. She felt that it was her religious obligation. She showed up at school. One of her teachers yelled at her. Another one slapped her. There was a terrible altercation. She was thrown out of school, suspended for 10 days. And she ended up becoming a high school dropout because she felt as though kind of her personal piety was incompatible with public life in Tunisia. Um, and then after the revolution, and this is a very you know, Tunisian story, to, to give an overview of it that's understandable, there was a sort of heyday where all of this kind of religious, civic activity, rad- a sort of sphere of radical activism, a kind of uh, a spectrum of, of moderate political Islam or militant political Islam, which had been completely shut down for decades in Tunisia, because it was so so authoritarian, kind of erupted. And within this heyday, you know, there were moments of violence, because I think, you know, there were elements of all of that that were connected to the old transnational jihadist groups that we think of, you know, as as Al-Qaeda. So essentially, the Tunisian government shut down the whole thing. You know, they shut down all of this political Islamist activity, whether it was kind of peaceful and it was about raising funds for hospitals and blood drives all the way over to the more militant end. And so for Noor, it was like going back to the past. It was as though the revolution had never happened. She felt like there was no space for her anymore. And I think it was, again, in that kind of milieu where it feels as though there are no more peaceful pathways left to demands and frustrations and to aspirations that seem legitimate that more militant groups can can prey and exploit very easily. And that's how Noor got caught up. And there were some American women who went to Syria and joined uh, ISIS. What can you tell us about them? It's interesting in that, you know, the story of women in ISIS, which is, which is really a story of, you know, women for the first time becoming a force in jihadist movements. We never had that before. You know, ISIS reached out to women, it recruited women, it offered women a role in a quite kind of perversely progressive way. We had never seen that before. Um, And it drew women from 54 countries. Strikingly, the Americans amongst them within this story have a very, very minor and modest role. Simply not that many went from America. And the ones who did go were not, they were not the ideologues and the recruiters who inspired others. Um, They were pretty minor characters. And, you know, as as a transplanted American in Europe, I, I tried to understand this. And I think... Ultimately, you know, there are huge differences in America's Muslim diaspora than, than the European diaspora to do with class background and level of education and then the kind of places of origin that they came from. But I think a really important distinction is that, and all of this seems to be changing now, of course, but, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, the inclusiveness of American culture to immigrants was, was has historically been very different from Europe. I think the American ideal of inclusion, that anyone can come and genuinely be an American, to a certain extent immunized America and the United, you know, the United States from the sort of draw. It, it did not offer such fertile ground for exploitation the way uh, Europe did for women. When you talk with many of these women, they were held in detention by the Kurdish security forces or by the Turkish security forces. So they were motivated to say things that would get them out of detention and accepted back in their home countries. How did you decide what to believe in their statements of remorse? That's a good question. 
partly I, I spent a lot of time with a lot of women. And so I was quite accustomed to meeting women who were very bold and not remorseful at all and were willing to suffer the consequences of that. At the same time, there were those who, who you could sort of tell if you spent time. I mean, if, if, you know, I've been kind of, I've inhabited this world for so long, you could sort of see that that they really didn't have that much empathy for the people that had suffered the, the most greatly in the hands of ISIS. There was a lack of empathy in certain parts of their stories. Um, maybe it was too glib. Maybe they um, kind of hurried over things. Certainly, there's the reality though that, that we're seeing now, which is that many of these women who are being held in these camps in the northeast of Syria um, are all squirreled in together. And the conditions in which they're being held are so... Uh, they're so reprehensible and, and so dangerous and so unhealthy that I think there's a level of rage in there that, that's hard to even diagnose. Is this rage against the West of ideological? Is this rage against, you know, being kept without any due process, any fair trial, being kept, you know, in detention alongside really still hardcore violent ISIS members? There was a killing this week in one of these camps because the women who are who are mixed in there are still many of them still violent. So all to say that that sh- that you know surely there were there were many who I think cast their their regret in in terms that we would struggle to to believe. Um, but I think we have to remember also that ISIS brutalized a great many of its own members. You know, women who tried to escape were locked up. They had their children taken away. Their degree of, of suffering that women who, you know, we would view as perpetrators have also experienced. And I think it's important to, to bear that in mind that this is kind of it's a phenomenon that somewhat legally from, from all the perspectives that we're used to assessing uh, accountability, it, it's, a different, it's a different creature. The Islamic State collapsed in March 2019. What's happening to these women now? Are any of them getting to go back to their countries of origin? The response has been very uneven. There are a handful of countries, particularly uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, Indonesia. These have been really at the forefront of bringing women home. But, but the, great, the great majority of countries in the West are, are very reluctant and, and at this point outright refuse to bring women back. Uh, countries of North Africa that also have sizable populations there are also reluctant. Um, it, it's, it's a political issue, I think, for, for the West, largely because in Europe, you know, populist right-wing governments and populist right-wing movements are on the rise and no government wants to risk you know, repatriating these women for whom there is no public sympathy. But at the same time, leaving them there is also a security risk. There are daily breakouts. Um, It's really an enormous and thorny policy challenge right now for a number of Western governments because there seems to be no good options. And keeping them there is arguably illegal, it's inhumane, and it's dangerous too. So I think that's going to be something we watch unfold, um, you know, in the months ahead. And what about the United States? I understand there are some American women who have quietly uh, returned. Yes, it's it's striking to see this administration that's been so vociferous about, you know, having a Muslim ban and has cultivated this fear of 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 migrants and Muslims generally. The United States has been very in favor of repatriation. It's logistically assisted countries that don't have the means to be able to do it. It's tried to bring most of its own female citizens back to sort of lead by example. So it's 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 interesting to see that in, in this one instance, kind of in contrast to what much of what this administration stands for on this point, perhaps 
uh, largely because of security, because they think that's safer. They are kind of leading the way in this. Azadeh Moaveni, her amazing new book is Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of ISIS. Azadeh, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.